Welcome to That's Podcasting, a movie musical podcast. I'm Cody Pasby. And I'm Paul Ponte. And this week we are continuing our month-long look at Fred Astaire. Uh, we have been talking about his post-retirement career, his MGM career, if you will, which I believe has really his most memorable scenes of his career and all of this at the ripe young age of 54 years old. Can you believe that he is 54 years old in this movie? Again, we've already talked about how he basically looks 45 for about 40 years. So maybe it's not that surprising he's 54. But this movie is the bandwagon that we will be discussing. This, I feel like, is... uh, uh, this is another movie where I had seen parts throughout my life. I'd never actually seen the movie front to back. But it always was the movie where I think the populist choice for best movie musical, best MGM musical, Singing in the Rain, I think, always comes in at first. This always felt like the people trying to be different choice, the uh, the hipster mm. choice for best MGM musical. At the, okay. But at the same time, especially the dancing in the dark scene with Sid Charisse, you can kind of see why. And it is a fantastic musical and, and a ton of Bruce fun. Bruce Springsteen's in this? That's right. That's This is this is the inspiration behind Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark. Uh, the only similarity is that they both take place in uh, the same about 60-mile vicinity of uh, the New Jersey area. That's about it. But uh, at age, this is... Fred Astaire at 54 years old, nearly 50 years into his acting career on both stage and screen. He goes back to his roots for this movie and really his next few roles as he stars in adaptations of some of his most popular stage musicals. This was a stage musical, actually the last stage musical he ever did with his sister Adele in 1931, The Bandwagon. And then a movie we're going to be talking about soon, Funny Face. With Audrey Hepburn, that was also a remake of a musical that he starred in with his sister as well. So Astaire starred in the original Bandwagon, which was more of a Broadway review, less of an actual show with a plot, which the show within the show here is sort of that. Uh, This is the second time this musical was actually adapted to the big screen. It was originally released as the aforementioned Dancing in the Dark in 1949 by 20th Century Fox. Uh, I actually had to do, like, a very, very specific uh, search to even find this movie. I searched Dancing in the Dark, and, of course, what comes up, Bruce Springsteen, and and even the scene to this movie come up. I went, no, 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 not that. I go, 1949. Even that was a little much. I went, 1949 movie musical. This movie actually has an identical plot, almost identical plot to this movie, despite the original show actually having no plot. It's kind of crazy that both of these have the same plot and are made, what, within four years of each other? So, you know, just your classic case of uh, that classic Hollywood uh, conundrum, the ants versus bugs life kerfuffle, if you will. Uh, You know, ants might have come (laughs) first, but come on. We all know who the champ is. Come on. It's my boy. It's my boy Flick. Dance. Ants is the champion. No, no. I'm sorry. Sliced Stallone <laughs> as a giant ant is not going to convince me. It's not going to do it. Hold on. Let me sweeten the pot. Woody Allen as an ant. Well, now you've got me. <laughs> the never problematic Woody Allen. Nope. Nope. 
Speaking of problematic, spoiler for later. Yep. Continue. Big spoiler for later. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't don't mess with my boy Heimlich the Caterpillar. Come on. It's Bugs Life all the way. Basically, all I'm trying to say is, yeah, this is the same exact scenario as uh, the Ants versus Bug Life, uh, Where Were You in 98 uh, scenario. The film's plot also seems to reflect what was actually happening in Fred Astaire's career at the time. He gets off to a hot start at MGM, but his last few movies, while they end up having a longer shelf life than I think they may have expected, initially not many successes uh, at the beginning uh, of those films run. So his star was beginning to fade, like the role he plays in the film, and he actually was considering retirement once again. I think he actually does retire very shortly again after his MGM contract and very quickly comes out of retirement once again. So so he's the Gene Simmons of musicals. He's the Gene Simmons. He's the Jay-Z. He's the Michael Jordan. Put in your apt comparison here. That is Fred Astaire. Absolutely. Very, very fickle. He's like a boxer. You know, he just never knows when to give up the fight. Can't put down those gloves. Can't put down those tap shoes. This movie did not change the perception of Fred Astaire's fading star. It's initially a flop. And uh, yeah, this was the movie where basically decides maybe it is time to hang him up. Uh, Art is also imitating life for co-star Sid Sid Charisse in this movie. Her character, there's that scene when uh, Tony Hunter, Fred Astaire's character, is talking about, they're at the ballet and they see her on stage and say, wow, she's lovely. A little tall though, a little bit tall. And uh, that was Mm. apparently a very real thing that she fought against her entire career, which makes sense because, what, she was in the Harvey Girls, which was her screen debut, and that's about 10 years, almost 10 years before this, uh, maybe about seven years before this. Mm. And if you look at her filmography between this and that, she's just like a dancer in a lot of things. She's, I mean, she's initially a dancer who becomes an actor, but... She doesn't get a lot of stuff other than dancing roles. She is prominently featured in Singing in the Rain and some of the big dance numbers. But, yeah, that's probably a big reason why. She was just a little too tall to go up against her male co-stars. The film keeps most of the original songs intact from the original musical and does add in a new one. That's entertainment. Hey, if you haven't realized by now, that's what our podcast is kind of named after. I hope that made sense to people. Hopefully it does now. That's entertainment. (laughs) That's podcasting. Of course, that's entertainment. Kind of becomes like... really took 11 episodes to get to it. Only took 11 episodes, and hopefully people are no longer scratching their heads. Uh, You have seen the light. That's entertainment. That's podcasting. Same diff. Uh, That's Entertainment also becomes the name of the popular Broadway or the musical review movies that MGM would release in three parts through the years. Kind of becomes like the unofficial theme song of this era of MGM musicals. Uh, This is the rare Fred Astaire film that actually has a co-choreographer credit. But when that co-choreographer is Michael Kidd, it doesn't sound so outlandish. Uh, He is one of, if not the most accomplished choreographer on Broadway at this time. He had already won two Tony Awards, including one for the original production of Guys and Dolls. Uh, He was actually personally recruited for this movie by Fred Astaire. Because, if you can believe it, Fred Astaire was actually nervous about doing this movie because of how much ballet was going to be in the movie. This movie is basically just like... He's just like, here's all the problems I'm having in real life. Let's make a movie about it. Yeah. He's like, I don't know how to do ballet. 
Uh, I'm old and people think I'm a has been. Uh, let's do it. Let's put it. On, let's put all of my problems and uh, all of my insecurities on screen. So uh, bravo, actually. That's a that's a solid move. Either that or the director or producer or writer or whatever just is the worst friend of all time. He's <laughs> just like, I'm really I'm really concerned about all the ballet in this. Yeah, let's use that. Yeah. No, I just I just would really like to talk to you about this. For I feel like my career might be stagnating and I Perfect. Let's make that part of the film as well. It's kind of perfect, the character, the director, Jeffrey Cordova. You could see him literally going, use that. Use that energy. Use that. By the way, directed by Vincent Minnelli, the uh, very story director. And I don't know, maybe there is a little bit of that because he's kind of a Gene Kelly. Obviously, Judy Garland uh, was married to her. So uh, I don't know, maybe this Oh, here comes Fred Astaire coming into our studio thinking he's a big shot. Well, I'm going to show you, buddy. Here's some ballet. Probably none of that. Jack Buchanan as Jeffrey Cordova. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I'm also noticing... He is a massive influence on an actor, and I want to make sure I get this right. Uh, he was in uh, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Yes. Oh, my. They look the same. They look the same. They act very similar. Like, I could tell he's like, a, and he now he's been in movies and TV shows as well, uh, that actor. And I'm forgetting. Oh, I'm going to. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I'm going to look that up. Continue. Yeah, Jack Buchanan is one of those guys where I looked at him and thought, oh, I've definitely seen this guy in a lot. And the more I looked him up, I realized I don't know this guy, but I know this type of guy. He becomes, the, I mean, and he is sort of following a, a, like a style of the time, the debonair man about town, if you will. In fact, I love this. The Times described him as the last of the Knuts or the Newts. Which, um, what is that? Well, they are a sort of a idle, upper-class man about town, is how they are defined. So, uh, sort of a playboy, if you will, but much more debonair and dashing and um, a little exhausting, maybe. So, he, he himself is probably pay, playing a, uh, a much more uh, over-the-top version of maybe his real-life persona. Yeah, that's uh, Jefferson Mays is the guy from... Yes, and he's great. Yeah, yeah, and he's in tons of God. He's in. It was in Westworld. Yeah, he in an he has shown up a lot recently in in a uh, in TV. But yeah, he is really really good. In I feel like his character, the character, not not Jefferson May's character. Um, no, the uh, the character in this movie. I feel like the, he's the idea of how film people see theater people. Totally, totally. Yeah. He's like, look how over the top they are. Look how dramatic they are. And I'm going to get into it a little bit as we go along. But the thing that kept sticking out as I was watching this, I thought Mel Brooks had to have seen this. And there there were so many moments. And it's not just because it's, oh, it's a Broadway show and it's all that. But there are so many moments that remind me of the producers in this moment, in this movie. Mm. And I think that he takes a lot of elements of this movie and ramps them up for the producers as not so much a spoof, but like a comedian, like an even more um, an homage. Yeah, an homage. It's definitely. It, I, I feel like the producers, in some ways, is an homage, and definitely the character of Roger Debris uh, in that movie, the the over the top director, feels very, very similar to uh, Jack Buchanan's uh, Jeffrey Cordova in this movie. Uh, 
But as I was saying, a little bit more about Michael Kidd working on this movie. Yeah, so Fred Astaire personally recruits him. He's actually nervous about how much ballet there was in the film. And during rehearsals, Kidd actually tried to make Fred Astaire feel more comfortable by acting like he was coming up with dance steps just on the spot, that he hadn't pre-rehearsed them. Yeah, I would imagine that's a little intimidating for even a guy who, Michael Kidd, who has so much respect, like, this is Fred Astaire. I can't make him feel like he's less than. Yeah. Uh, Kid goes on to have a pretty decent career in film as well. He goes on to be the head choreographer for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers the next year. Uh, also for Hello, Dolly, many years later, while also finding time to take home three more Tony Awards. So, uh, yeah, one of the absolute best in uh, the choreography business of all time. Despite the film's less-than-stellar box office performance, it has become one of MGM's most beloved musicals. As years have gone by, it's actually ranked as the 17th best musical of all time by the American Film Institute. And I think for uh, two scenes in particular that we will uh, be talking about, I always feel like that's, uh, that's what I'm finding in the Fred Astaire movies. There's like two moments where I'm like, oh yeah, this is an all-timer and like in almost every one of his movies. They definitely made his movies uh, with set pieces in mind. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, many of the movie musicals of this era uh, are done the same way where it's and that's really because they're all borrowing so heavily of like the Broadway review style show that was so popular during vaudeville, especially. So, yeah, it makes sense that that's the way they would do it. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, we we finally did a musical where people are putting on a show. I know. Crazy, right? What a what a wild idea. It's it's crazy, like, they still use the framework, and yet I'm like, oh, this one's different, kind of. This yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, they're putting on a show, but, like, this time, it's, uh, you know. Hey, this time, there's a problem. This time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, the movie is called The Bandwagon, and I'm a guy who is a sports guy, works in sports radio as well. So I was just curious because I always hear hopping on the bandwagon, jumping on the bandwagon. And I thought, where does that term come from? Does this have anything to do with the musical? Probably not, but it just scratched an itch in my brain. Uh, the phrase was first used in 1848 by Dan Rice, and I'm so glad I went down this rabbit hole. Dan Rice, a former circus clown turned politician. Jerry Rice's great-grandfather. Right. That's a verifiable fact. Just went more into the sports thing. Exactly. Yeah, Dan Rice, a former circus clown turned politician. <laughs> so you're telling me he used that experience of being a clown just to become another clown in hey, a suit? Hey! He used jumping on the bandwagon as his slogan while running for political office, uh, including his run for president in 1868, why did he run for that office? Because he was actually one of the first household names in American pop culture. He was the really the first celebrity in American pop culture in many ways. Uh, he was extremely famous for being a clown and for doing basically circuses. Like he, I, I realized, wait a minute. We all talk about like Ringling Brothers, and he gets his own musical. He gets his own two musicals, but it's this guy. This guy like invented the circus, and he was. He was famous around the country. Everyone knew this guy. And he ran for Senate. Wow. He ran for Congress. He ran for president. And uh, apparently died penniless after all that. So uh, there you go. Dan Rice. 
see, Cody, you, it's more comforting now for you to know that politicians, no matter how many scan, how much scandal, no matter how what they do, no matter their success rate, nowadays, all of them are financially wealthy. So you could sleep easy oh, tonight. Gosh, makes me so happy to know that all of them at Washington don't have to worry about those sorts of things. Just makes me really nope. happy. Everything's fine. Yeah, everything's Everything fine. Everything is fine. I know. Celebrity presidents, who, what a thought. Who would have ever thought that could happen? No way. Not in my lifetime, at least. <laughs> all right, we're, we're, da- we're veering dangerously into some territory here. All right, anyway. So that's, let's get off that bandwagon. Yeah, so let's hop off that bandwagon and into this bandwagon. The bandwagon, 1953. The film opens up by establishing that actor, Tony Hunter, played by Fred Astaire, uh, is a total has-been at this point in his career. They show that auction where his movie props are selling for next to nothing. And as he's on a train to New York to meet with a couple of his writing friends about a new play, uh, the two men discuss this old has-been Tony Hunter, and then they realize they're actually sitting next to Tony Hunter. He steps off the train, and a gaggle of paparazzi are waiting for him, much to his surprise. But no, they're not actually waiting for him. They're waiting for Ava Gardner, and... I was like, wait, that's the real Ava Gardner. <laughs> that's, at first I was like, oh, this is just some standard. No, okay, that's Ava Gardner. They just literally plucked her out and got is her to Is this do one it. of the early cameos, like, in history? I mean, is there other cameos? There's got to be more. Especially, you would think more movies back then would have them more often, just the way that the studio system worked. Mm. I feel like people would just stumble on stuff. But set. people playing themselves? Yeah, that's true. Oh. That's true. People playing themselves is a little different, but yeah, I could see it being like an, uh, you know, the, the only thing that's coming to my mind is like Daniel Craig being a stormtrooper in Star Wars, where you could see someone maybe being in costume and they're disguised, but it's technically a cameo. Yeah, I, I think this probably happened more. And also, there were a lot of movies back then that were like, again, Broadway review style musicals, where I think people just showed up and did the number and then they were done. So. I would like to look that up. It's a good call. So at this point, uh, Tony is realizing that uh, he's a has-been. So he sings by himself, sings a song by myself, uh, as he's walking through the train station, looking at magazine racks and whatnot, and uh, heads to the station lobby and meets up with his quote-unquote fan club, the writers for the play he's about to star in. That would be Lester and Lily Martin, played by Oscar Levant and Nanette Fabre. That night, they take Tony out and tell him that famous director and actor Jeffrey Cordova, played by the aforementioned Jack Buchanan, will be directing his new musical, despite the fact that Cordova is more accustomed to directing more melodramatic stage plays. As they walk down 42nd Street... Faust! (laughs) Yes, we're going to get into Faust. I have a lot to say about Faust, surprisingly. (laughs) I've never seen someone so energetic about Faust. Faust, yes. If you've got a ton of energy for the classic German (laughs) gothic tale, Faust. Boy, oh boy, do I got some tidbits for you. As they walk down 42nd Street, Tony is shocked at what it has become. Just a wretched hive of scum and villainy, apparently. And right on cue, a drunkard bumps into Lester and hurts his leg. Uh, The Martins call a cab as Tony decides to walk the rest of the way over to Sardi's for dinner, but not before stopping by the local Penny Arcade. Hold on. Go ahead. 
he is hurt by a by a local hobo, if you will. Right. A bum. And then he gives him money. He gave him money just to go away. I was so like, what is happening right yeah, now? Yeah, it was a ridiculous moment. But I think it's because the guy just lingers. And he's just like, True. take the money, go away. We need to get out of here. Tony st- walks into the local Penny Arcade to get some humorous moments uh, where, again, I think there's maybe even a little bit of foreshadowing as he there's the very tall woman that he keeps running into at each little spot. There's a little boy that keeps following him menacingly. With his ice cream. Yeah. Very little red haired demon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little ginger. Don't you hurt ginger Fred. Nightmare. Don't you hurt him. Uh, I also liked that the um, the fortune teller machine, clearly a real woman in the fortune teller machine. Did you catch that? Oh, yeah. I loved that. Definitely. It's clearly just a real woman in there. It's not a robot. <laughs> oh, yeah. So good. <laughs> And then he goes over to the shoe shine parlor and sings a lovely little ditty, a shine on your shoes, and one of the first real big dance numbers. Uh, and it's just delightful to see him. Again, The this is another mark of this era. Let's have a number where you can interact with the environment, have fun with it, goof around. And it's just a lot of fun. Like, uh, uh, yeah, I, I love how he uses the environment. The dance with the shoe shiner is fantastic. Can we talk about the wonderful fashion sense of the shoe shiner? Yes. With those bright pink socks. Yes. I was like, this, this is. Even had the, like, the shirt was very colorful, almost kind of blousey. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It's good for, like, a hot summer day. Uh, Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. Liked everything about it. it. Liked everything about it. The way way that the clickety-clack when they shine the shoes and everything. Yeah. It was great. Don't get me wrong. There, there was a part of me that got a little scared. I'm like, all right, movies here. It's in the fifty, early fifties. Right. There's a black shoe shiner. What's about to happen? <laughs> I, was, I was just a little. I was like, what? Could, but no. Instead, what we got was a delightful set piece. And uh, my favorite was the payoff with the machine, uh, the silver machine that no matter how many quarters you put in, it wouldn't do anything. But the handles. Yeah, and he kicks it and goes, it just explodes and it, with music and yeah, it was awesome. With a much bigger payoff than you than you would have imagined. Yes. It's just like, oh wow, okay, there was a lot of stuff in that little thing. It was great. I also get a kick out of the extras in this scene. I was just looking at their faces. These are, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they're act, they, they are real actors and they're extras. But there's also a part of me that's like, this might, I don't know, these might just be regular people who live in the Los Angeles area or wherever they're filming this movie. I'm assuming LA. Because you can clearly see they are just enjoying the hell out of this moment of just like look at Fred Astaire just doing the best doing doing his work. They're not looking at him like look at this random dude. They're looking at him like he's Fred Astaire. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't even care that it took me away from it. They're just like look at we get to just watch Fred Astaire this close dancing yeah. his ass just off, just shitting grins on all their faces. Just I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Later on, the three meet back up to see Jeffrey Cordova's Oedipus Rex, and they meet him after the show. Uh, this ridiculous scene where he's just so milking it. Like I said, a movie producer's idea of what theater is. Yes, and it's not theater; it's theater. Like yes. you have to. Every guy sounds like that in theater, even if they grew up in you know in Hoboken. Yeah. Me, why I'm from Yonkers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually from Dubuque. 
Yes. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard of it. <laughs> After the show, Jeffrey is actually introduced to Tony three different times before he actually realizes who he is. He's so... Well, he's so flighty. He's of the theater. Exactly. He has so much stuff going on in his little brain. He can't for once concentrate. <laughs> And, of course, after the show, then, they go backstage as Lester and Lily describe their script to Tony and Jeffrey. It's a show about an author who mostly writes children's stories, but also likes to write the occasional murder mystery. And that's what makes him his real money. And as Lily describes it, it makes him feel like he sold his soul to the devil. Oh, hang on to that line, because that's the line that Jeffrey hangs on to, and he just rolls with it. Uh, he decides that the musical is going to be a Faust. modern retelling Faust, as he says. What? The German legend of Faust, much to their yes. dismay. Of course, that legend being uh, just very briefly, if you don't know Faust, you know, you know Faust. If you don't know Faust, it's about the man who decides to sell his soul to the devil. And um, yeah, basically gets uh, eternal damnation for just a few years of uh, being good at something. That's essentially what it is. That's that's a very, very spark notesy version of Faust, yeah. but that's what it is. And you've seen the story time and time again. Weird that it's not particularly mentioned by name all the time. Like, you always hear when something is Hamlet or when something is King Lear, but you never hear when a story is Faust. I think, though, it's because now it is, what, this story, the original story was written, what, in the 1500s, 1400s? Something I mean, like that. Wh- when was King Lear? Yeah, you're right. That's true. That's the same difference. You're <laughs> I, I, right. I don't know why, but for some reason, like you always hear, like, oh yeah, that's a very, you know, this is obviously like the Hamlet of this TV show. This is the, you know, blah blah. Like everyone loves to. It's weird that the story those. itself is more of just a trope at this point. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it is indeed a story that has been adapted many, many times before on film, on screen, and stage. In fact. I don't know if the crew knew something that we didn't. Because, again, the big joke is like, Faust in a musical? How will that work? Well, two years later, Damn Yankees comes out, which is a modern retelling of Faust featuring Gwen the Vernon. Band? Uh Yeah. <laughs> sorry. That's, uh, sorry. My love of uh, 80s uh, power ballad metal is... Yes, no. Not the oh. I'm sorry. It features Gwen Verdon as the uh, Mephistopheles character. Can you take me high enough? Nope, nope, not that Fly either. me over not... yesterday. Nope, 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 not that. Let's save it for the Rock of Ages episode. Well, Ted Nugent was in it, so... If we're going to keep going with pro- with problematic wait, in people... Da- wait, in damn Yankees? In... Yes. What production? No, the band. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I've got it all crossed up right now. <laughs> like, hold the phone. Ten new. See, here's the thing. Is it sounded? What's funny is you were like, wherever it is, I'm gonna pay for that it, to see it. It right sounded now. <laughs> crazy enough that it might be true. Like in a in a 1978 version of Damn Yankees, they're like. Just doing a ton of coke in the back, like, let's get Ted Nugent for the devil. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. Did you know he hunts? I've heard. Anyway. I've heard that. I hope he's doing I hope he's doing okay during these times. I know he's got that cat scratch fever, so. <laughs> Sorry. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I I don't know if they knew something we didn't because they are making fun of it. Like that won't work. That's how can you make that work? And then it worked two years later mm. to great success. Sometimes Cody and I'm making this up as I go along. Sometimes art imitates life, and sometimes life imitates art. Very wise, wiser words have never been spoken. So yeah, a lot of there have been a lot of retellings of Faust. This also gives me an excuse to talk about the other uh, almost musical, uh, the absolutely bizarre, and I still can't believe it actually happened, Randy Newman Faust concept album that was supposed to be a musical featuring James Taylor, Don Henley, Bonnie Raitt, Linda Ronstadt, and Elton John. What? This is real? This this was made? This is real. And guess what? It's great. I don't give a shit about it. People talk shit about Randy Newman, but you know what? This shit is good. It's so it's called good. Faust? It's Randy Newman's Faust, and it was supposed to be a stage musical. Is it on Spotify? It's on everywhere. It should be everywhere. Sorry, I, I'm I'm taking this to a screeching halt. Yeah, no, I just need to Paul, this it. is also really just an episode where I, you and I devise how do we make a movie musical version of randy newman's faust how do we make this happen who do we call i need to know uh this was an album that i swear to god as a child was on in my house if you want to know what kind of house i grew up in why am i not surprised i grew up in a house where my mother played yentl and then my father played randy newman's faust so this is this is why i am the way i am (laughs) it all makes sense now uh yeah randy newman plays the devil and james taylor plays god it's good. What a what a smooth sounding man to play God. It's really. I mean, is there a better choice? Well, I mean, he's seen fire and he's seen rain. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, this whole episode was just an excuse to let the masses know that uh, that exists. So there you go. Enjoy yourselves, everyone. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, moving on. So yeah, it's gonna be Faust. If you didn't know by now, uh, the entire. T- play takes a turn and he jeffrey runs with the faust idea he'll play the devil it's going to be more dramatic than initially thought and he intends to cast gabrielle gerard a famous prima ballerina played by sid charisse uh tony's not a ballet dancer he's not a dramatic actor and he doesn't like this idea so he tells jeffrey he's not going to do it but jeffrey convinces tony to stay by telling him hey kid that's entertainment. Yes, the film's one original song. That's entertainment. It's a fun number, very comedic. Uh, you even right before it, I like the part where he's trying to convince him that like it's all just entertainment. Doesn't matter what you're doing, and he's tapping up the steps of uh, the little stage, uh, and then falls back, and then begins the song. Uh, yeah, just a very fun, entertaining number with the four of them. Very good, and it and hearing that it was the only original song, it makes me, it makes me wonder what happened because nowadays when a movie musical gets made, the only original song they put into the movie usually tends to be a stinker of high amount. Like always, like it's always so bad. (laughs) I mean, there's a couple of exceptions. For instance, like I, I thought, Evermore in the was, was a good song. I was gonna say Beauty and the Beast actually has a couple of good original ones because they're also written by Alan Menken. That would also yeah, do it. but like the original song in Les Rob, oh dear lord, is that a slog? It's not good. And it, and it's like, how do you mess this up when basically Les Rob is four songs all sang 
the same way with different lyrics. <laughs> we totally that's what Les Miserables is. There's like three songs in the whole picture. They're just they just change the lyrics. Right. <laughs> but for some reason this one they were like, "Oh no, instead let's let's have this incredibly long song dr- droning song." If you were to tell me, "Oh yeah, we're going to make an original song. Hugh Jackman's going to sing it. It's going to be a nice little soft ballad." I'd be like, "Oh, I can't wait to hear this." And instead I went, "Oh, chapter skip." I barely remember on- this song now. I'm thinking about it. He's he's it's when he gets Cosette and he's, and oh, he's they're in yeah. the carriage together. Yeah. Uh I call that the skip chapter on my DV on my Blu-ray. Yeah. Say, and next scene. <laughs> that seems real I mean, there you go. It's completely forgettable. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think back in these days, it is kind of crazy. Like the original songs would be the ones that tended to stick out and be very memorable. So uh I don't know what happened. Don't know yeah. what happened. Also, you know, they they did a pretty uh, that's that's such a great melody and like they use it throughout the rest of the movie. It's it's really the theme song of the movie. So, uh yeah, they hit on gold on that one. Yeah, it becomes it becomes the through line of the movie. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Later that evening, Jeffrey sets up a meeting with Gabrielle's choreographer and boyfriend, Paul Bird, played by James Mitchell, to try to get her in the show, But and he succeeds by playing a little uh, rabbit season, duck season, basically, uh, on him, as basically telling him that, uh, oh, there's this part for the play, but uh, it requires a dancer of high quality, and uh, I don't know, I didn't have Gabrielle in mind, and then, of course, he convinces them, you gotta have me and Gabrielle, and you're crazy for not doing so, so... Yes, he, she is in the show. The next night, the Martins and Tony go to see their new co-star at the ballet. And yes, Tony notes multiple times that she might be just a little bit too tall for the role. Afterwards, they go to Jeffrey's house to meet with investors of the new show. And Tony and Gabrielle are both nervous to meet each other. Meanwhile, we see Jeffrey multiple times describing in ridiculous detail a completely different story from the one that uh, the Martins wrote to the investors. I love all those little scenes as they open the door and they see him just like fire brimstone, just being absolute, just a total ham. He's from the theater. Cody. Of course, it's this is how they act. These are these are how real people act. Faust. Um, it's not that. I mean, it's not that far off. Let's be honest. You know, True. I was in theater enough to know, like, yeah, yeah, that's about right. The people who keep going with it, yeah, they just become that. By the way, the Faust. Okay, okay, that's why I was like, there's 37 songs on here, but no, there are a bunch of demos. That's why. Right, right, right. I think it's like 17 songs. Uh, is the original version. <laughs> I just look at the the one title I saw right now is just bleeding all over the place. <laughs> I'm excited. Enjoy yourself, Paul. Enjoy. I'm excited. <laughs> I hope the world needs to know. Again, your mileage may vary with Randy Newman's vocals, but whatever. Bleeding all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that far off. The horrified look on her face. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Tony and Gabby end up running into each other in the hallway. And uh, I like the moment is Tony, as he's talking to her, immediately is measuring himself to her. Gabrielle tells Tony, oh, I saw your pictures when I was just a little girl. And I saw an exhibit at the museum of your things recently. And that just sets oh, him he's off. Loving it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's very mad. 
Yes, he's very, very bad. He gets into it, gets into an argument that ends with both saying that they won't work with one another. Mm. But as they both head for the exit, Jeffrey comes out and introduces his stars to the investors, so they're stuck with each other. Oh, well. Auditions begin, and we get a smashing montage uh, that's all set to That's Entertainment. We see everyone practicing. Uh, we see that goofy little moment during the auditions where Lester points to the one girl that he likes, and she's not a good dancer. Uh, and then, of, and it also ends with a fire effect that literally blows up in Jeffrey's face, much to his delight. Also, was there like a, a, a veiled jab to Summerstock at one of these? Did you notice the little poof? I th- it may have something to do with maybe the troubled production. Mm. This is one where I, because he says, what is this, Summerstock? Oh, okay. uh, and I was like, what does that mean? Uh, this is some people who are more musical historians can can chime in and let me know because I, f- I felt like that was a bit of a jab uh, at Summerstock, but who knows. After we get a closer look at how Tony's getting accustomed to the stage again and to dancing the ballet, uh, at dance practice, he can't quite get the hang of the ballet danced. Well, actually, before that, we get another ridiculous scene where uh, Jeffrey is telling Tony, what, one-eighth of an iceberg. I need all eight-eighths. Yes. And then he comes out and is just hamming it up. And he's like, there it is. Like, well, of course, it's <laughs> just, the theater. It has to be big. It's the theater. You, you got to play to the back of the crowd. You got to play to the last row, as they always say. Yes. After that, though, we get a look at how uh, Tony is trying to get accustomed to ballet dance, and then Jeffrey decides, no, take a break. We're going to replace you on this seed, and that leads him to his breaking point. Tony quits the show in a big huff and uh, in a great monologue that I'm going to keep in my back pocket in case I ever need to make a dramatic exit from any future job I ever have. I'm literally going to say Tony and everything, and people are going to be like, who the fuck is he talking about? Who is this guy that he keeps talking about? His name's not Tony. Mm -hmm. So he leaves. Then afterwards, we see that even the Martins are at a breaking point as their script has been completely reworked and torn to pieces. And Lester goes to the local bar right across the way uh, for a nightcap to get some stress off. Later that night, Tony tears up his hotel room in frustration and Gabrielle makes a surprise visit to his place to apologize, but only at the request of Paul. She breaks down and tells him that he's been mean to her ever since they met, and she felt bad for being mean, and he feels guilty for making her feel mean and guilty, and, oh, there's just lots of emotion everywhere. Also, he has very nice paintings. Uh, that's that's also noted in the scene. That's kind of important for later on. Uh, he calms her down, and the two decide, let's go out for a stroll, and maybe we could try to figure things out. Or as he says, what, uh, could we really be a dance partner? He says, Let's find out by going out for a night stroll. You know, the normal thing that people do when uh, they decide, hey, we have to figure out if we can dance. Let's go out to Central Park in the middle of the night because that's, who knows, maybe there'll just be a random concert going on and we can just dance in the middle of the park. A very normal thing to do. Yeah, I feel like that was like the go-to, like, like, hey, uh, it's time to go walk in Central Park. Sounds good. And then like, and then perhaps fall in love. Maybe. Just maybe. So, yes, they take a horse and carriage over to Central Park. And as they're walking through, they, huh, look at this. They stumbled into a concert as they walk through a group of people dancing around. And then eventually they find an open spot where they 
try to figure out if they can be a real dance duo. And that's where we get really the most iconic scene of the movie. That would be the Dancing in the Dark number. Um, probably the most notable in the movie. One of Fred Astaire's most famous scenes. It's incredibly elegant. Uh, and I think you see uh, he, the two actors work together later. Sid Charisse and Fred Astaire do another movie a couple years later. And I think you see why after this number. She is every bit his equal oh, yeah. in this scene. And she goes on after this to be more than just, oh, she's a dancer. Like, she goes on to be uh, a leading lady in a lot of movies for at least the next 10 years or so. I have a fun bit of a uh, little trivia. Uh, uh, have you ever wondered, I don't know if you looked this up or not, what she thought about uh, dancing with Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly? I did not okay. know. Okay. No. So, Cody, if you wanted to know who's the better dancer, she has she has an answer for you. I bet she's going to say Fred Astaire. As one of the handful of girls who worked with both of those dance geniuses, I think I can give an honest opinion. In my opinion, Kelly is the more inventive choreographer of the two. Astaire, with Hermes Pan's help, creates fabulous numbers for himself and his partner, but Kelly can create an entire number for someone else. I think, however, that Astaire's coordination is better than Kelly's. His sense of rhythm is uncanny. Kelly, on the other hand, is the stronger of the two. When he lifts you, he lifts you. To sum it up, I'd say there were the two greatest, two greatest dancing personalities who were ever on screen, but it's like comparing apples and oranges. They're both delicious. I have always thought the thing with, with Gene Kelly is I feel like he is more innovative. He is like I think Fred Astaire establishes a style and does it impeccably, whereas I think Gene Kelly takes everything to another level uh, where there is just things you never even thought you'd see on screen. Not that Fred Astaire didn't also do that. I mean, we just talked about a movie where we just blown away by it because I almost feel like to her style is maybe more in like it fits better with Fred Astaire. But. At the same time, I mean, there's like ballet scenes in almost every Gene Kelly movie. So, so yeah, mm. anyway. Yeah, apples and oranges. Yeah. That sounds about right. And she continues that uh, fantastic judgment uh, by campaigning heavily for Nixon. Anyway, continue what you were going to say. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we all have our regrets. That's, uh, that's a pretty big one. Not good. The Fred Astaire of politics. Anyway, continue, Cody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Also, a couple of things on Sid Charisse that I had seen. She apparently insured her legs for $5 million. I love stories like that. That stuff, I I don't know why it always tickles me. Uh, Like, uh, what was it, J-Lo and her butt? Yes, uh, there's that. So very, very similar. I love it. Hey, you you know where your money's made. I love it. That's, That's all it means. Smart. I love stuff like that. It's just, I don't know why. It's just good business. I think it's also because like people get like really incredulous about it. People yeah. just get like, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, really? <laughs> what, who, what business is this of yours at any point in your life? Right. Who cares? <laughs> and again, that's where she made her money was her legs. Like, that's what she she was a dancer. Yeah. First and foremost. So come on. Uh, also, she released I think a series of uh, exercise videos for senior citizens in her later years. Mm. So there's that too. Uh, also, Sweating the oldies. Uh, very similar. Sweating to the oldies, sort of vibe. Sweating with the oldies. Anyway, continue. Yes. Also, the uh, we mentioned, I think, in Harvey Girls, 
that her voice is dubbed over, which, in fact, every musical she ever did, she never sang. She could not sing. Oh, wow. And they just dubbed, but she was such a good dancer, they had to have her in everything. So, uh, yeah, they dubbed over her voice, and apparently she made her Broadway debut at the age of 70, I think in 90, 1990 or 92, I can't recall the year, uh, in a production of Grand Hotel. And uh, the producers of that had to find out the hard way that she couldn't sing. Apparently the performance was a disaster, <laughs> and she could not hold a note. So, uh, yeah, okay. Well, hey, a fantastic dance partner for two of the most iconic dancers of all time. So after that night dance, Tony and Gabrielle seem to finally be on the same page. But the next day at rehearsal, everything else seems to be going wrong. There's problems with the music. The, the effects are wrong. The set is going up. So is Jeffrey Cordova. I love that whole crazy scene as like the set's going up and it's not supposed to be. And then suddenly the lights start is, coming down and then he starts getting lifted up. Is and, this the same scene where they're dancing and the flash paper is just going off all around them? Uh, oh, that's later that's on. on. That's okay. later. That's like the very next okay. scene. Uh, yeah, all of this is happening on the same day. Where it's this is also the day before opening night. Everything is a disaster. Everything's gone wrong. An exhausted Gabrielle and Tony are called back on stage to rehearse one of the final numbers of the show with the effects, and that is the one you're alluding to. You and the night and the music, as uh, Jeffrey Cordova looms over them as the devil and explosions are going off all around the stage as they're trying to dance around them. I also noticed they they clearly are adding in like cough sound effects. She's clearly not coughing. Neither one of them are like you can hear like <laughs> every time the explosions are going up. Yeah, because she's clearly laughing the entire time. You can uh, see okay. she's like smiling and laughing as this is all happening. Uh, which I got a kick out of, but yeah, they totally just added in random coughs that don't seem to be any coming from anywhere. Just a disembodied. You know cough. what? I don't agree with this. Release the laughing cut. Release the laugh cut. Yes, exactly. The second most uh, requested musical uh, director's cut. Exactly. We won't we won't talk about the other one. So now it is opening night of Jeffrey Cordova's The Bandwagon, or really Jeffrey Cordova's Faust. Faust. And despite the excitement beforehand, uh, we get this bizarre, like, very quick montage of, like, uh, very gothic art that is supposed to evoke, like, Faust. But then the last thing you see is just a drawing of an egg. And then it cuts to <laughs> the doors opening. And people walking out as though they had just seen a mass shooting. Yes, people like they've just seen a man die on stage. Like, they are so distraught from just like seeing a bad play. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the producers, it comes to mind, uh, reminds me more of the musical version where everyone walks out and they sing the song. It's the worst show in town. It's It feels very, uh, yeah, just silly and fun. So, yeah, the show is an abject failure. It did not work. The after party is not much of an after party. After the disastrous opening night, Tony arrives and he realized nobody but him showed up. So he decides, I'm out of here, heads back to his hotel room, and he hears the rest of the cast and crew in another room having an impromptu party. As he describes it, more of a wake than an after party uh, with beer and pizza plenty. Gabrielle eventually shows up along with the Martins as Lester gets on the piano and sings what is, I'm going to say it, my new favorite drinking song. 
Yes. I love Louisa. So good. Yeah. I love this song. It's so goofy. Just all about drinking beer and loving a girl named Louisa and the beer. Or is the beer Louisa? I <laughs> who knows? If yay, that's the point of a drinking song. You're too drunk to know any different. I am going to guess that Fred Astaire maybe heard some German being spoken in his house as a child because his German is impeccable during uh, the the German verse of this number. I believe his parents are of German descent, German-Austrian descent. Let's see. Hmm. Uh, grew up in Omaha. Yeah, we know that. Uh, I mean, Fr- Friedrich Austerlitz. Uh, Esther's mother was born in the United States to Lutheran German emigrants from East Prussia. There you go. Yeah, he 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 almost definitely heard a lot of German uh, growing up in his house. I'm gonna guess. Impeccable German, lovely song. Definitely gonna drink this the next time uh, we can all go out. Eventually, when everything is settled, we can go out and j- get drunk. I'm singing "I Love Louisa," and I don't care if anyone knows what it is. Your wife's gonna be very confused. <laughs> Again, Louisa is the beer. That's the ex- that's what it is. Whatever you want to tell yourself to okay, not sleep on a couch, you, Cody. Yeah, I guess you're right. Fair enough. <laughs> you can sing it then. Fine. I, I ha- swear. I hand it off to you. You get to sing "I Love Louisa." Fine. I'm just seeing, I just see Cody like by a door. It's. I swear it's the beer. I, swear, it's the I beer. swear. As if that makes it any better. So you're saying you love beer more than me? Is that what you're saying? Can't we start over? Let's take a walk in the park, honey. <laughs> Let's find out if we're a dance, a dance partner or not. That's how they do it. This is how they do yep. it. After the song, everybody goes silent, realizing that this might be their last time all together, and the show's a failure. Everyone's disappointed, but Lester tries to rally the troops and tells everyone, hey, we've got everyone here. We're all talented people. We can still put on the show as it should have been. So Tony calls up Jeffrey's room and lets him have it, tells him that they're going to do what they intended to do in the first place. They're going to take the show on the road. And then uh, in a funny little bit, he, he's actually talking to the housemaid the entire yes. time. I, I loved, because he, he goes on for so long. Yeah. Like, and she goes, this is the housemaid. Yeah. I, I thought that was really funny. It was a really funny I, bit. Yeah, it was. It's so good, because everyone's just around him like, yeah, tell him. You tell him. You're our hero. He's not in. <laughs> uh, so he's not there, but actually, luckily, Jeffrey had quietly entered the room before that and had heard everything he was saying. And he agrees to stay with the show and to go in a different direction as he realized the error of his ways. And everyone's excited. And Gabrielle says, isn't this great to uh, to Paul Bird? And he says, eh, nah, you stay here. You're better than that. And uh, she decides to go anyway, despite his request to stay in New York. And she yeah, hits good. the road. Good for her. Don't just be chasing the fame, Gabrielle. Exactly. Yeah. Go on the road and, uh, you know, be a traveling, uh, basically, you know, a glorified traveling carny. Why not? I see no problem. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Based on the other movies we've seen, carnies are wonderful people who are known to break into song at any time. That's true. That's true. I mean, you would. It, there's a value in being a carny over a doctor in this time. So yes, yeah, it's actually a really good job. Uh, full benefits, 401k. Also, you'll run into a lot of hobos, and as from what I can tell, apparently they're hilarious. They're delightful people. 
Apparently, they just dance and fall all over the place every time you see them. Wonderful. Wonderful yeah. human beings. Salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The show hits the road and becomes more of a Broadway review with a very loose plot. They describe the plot of this movie, and I they never explicitly say what's happening. My guess is the plot that the, all the numbers are like the children's stories that the character writes and that the big final number is the murder mysteries that he writes because yeah there's no plot these are just yeah it's, these it's are just, just some, Broadway some random songs right but they're like we're gonna do what we originally did and then I'm like what the, what do you mean this is these are just random songs all just tied together very with no discerning plot or anything so I don't know maybe maybe that's what it is I'm gonna uh give them the benefit of the doubt that uh, that's that's what's really going on. Anyway, yeah, we get the song "New Sun in the Sky," and yes, again, this is Sid Charisse not singing. It's not her singing. She is not a good singer, apparently. Uh, I would actually like to hear her in that version of Grand Hotel to uh, make up my mind on my own. But uh, then we, yeah, we get basically a montage of all of these uh, of these uh, Broadway review numbers. The next one will is I guess I'll have to change my plan with Tony and Jeffrey performing a number together, and the actor who plays Jeffrey Cordova, Jack Buchanan, is also a veteran of Broadway and, I believe, of musicals uh, in England. So he looks great, a tap dancing alongside Fred Astaire. They look great together. Very, it, it, again, evokes the end of uh, the, the two I thought of. The end of Chicago, where it's the two, Roxy and uh, uh, yeah, Velma, are, are dancing together, you know, step by step, you know, step in step, uh, synchronized. Also, once again, the end of The Producers is almost exactly like this. Top Hat and Kane, our two main characters, side by side, alarms locked. It's uh, very, very similar. So I like this number, too. Uh, and then we get Louisiana Hayride. And hey, Lily Martin gets a chance to uh, shine in a fun little ditty that uh, feels almost like a send-up of Oklahoma, right? That's what's going on here. Yeah. Definitely. Sort of a spoof send-up of uh, the Oklahoma style, even though it's, what, it's Louisiana, but eh, close enough. I don't know enough about the, the, the history of hayrides. When I think of Louisiana, I don't think of hayrides. That's, no. That's all I'm saying. That feels more of a Midwestern thing. It's, that, yeah. It feels like it was, it was someone who, who's never been to Louisiana right. a song about Louisiana. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, if you're going to be Louisiana, be like, yeah, the bayou or, uh, you know, down the river or something. Jazz. Not uh, country hayride. Yeah. Not what I envision. Back on the train in between shows, uh, Tony sees that Paul Bird is still mailing Gabrielle, much to his disappointment because, shocker, Tony is falling in love with her. Who'd have thunk it? I never thought, you know, they, they weren't getting along. Why didn't you tell me I was in love with you? You know. Yeah. Why didn't you tell me that? Was it the? the I think it was the last movie. They, he doesn't say why didn't you tell me I fell in love with you, but he says something to the effect like, "Oh, that screws everything up," or something like that. Or like, <laughs> why? <laughs> oh, oh, I shouldn't man. be in love with you. This ruins it all. Like, stop it. Anyway, Tony sits down with Lester, and Lester encourages him to follow his heart and. Go after her because uh, he thinks he's maybe thinking a little bit too much about his career, which 
basically all the Fred Astaire characters we watched so far have been like, I can't get married. What about my career? What about the theater? But uh, yeah, Lester convinces him, yeah, you got to do it because that old Paul Bird is a good for nothing anyway. Then we get, um, I'm going to say it, a horrifying and disturbing number. Uh, a heartwarming song about um, babies who murder each other called Triplets. Uh, this shit is scary. Uh, this shit is, is nightmare inducing. <laughs> the baby costumes, just everything, <laughs> just everything about this is like, I know musicals can be silly sometimes, but this was. Come on, people. This is so was... silly. Stop yeah. it. Uh, how is this effect pulled off? They're just on their knees, right? They got to be. Yeah, I would assume. Okay. And there's like black curtains around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. True, true, true. Um, yeah, they say uh, I wish I had a widow gun so I could kill my other uh, my other triplet siblings. It's it's honestly hilarious, but it's 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 just it takes. I think it really like takes you out of this final montage yeah. of stuff. It's kind of like out of nowhere. You're like this. What is this one? Why? Like the, Why are we here? The three prior to this are like, yeah, okay. These are just your standard stage Run numbers. The mill. And then this. Just this horrifying debauchery. I feel like that was, uh, they let the uh, the director chime in, like, okay, we'll give you one scene you have full control of. He's like, babies trying to murder <laughs> each other. <laughs> and then he was sent to a mental institution <laughs> for a long time. A long, oh. long time. Yeah, this whole scene is uh, both hilarious and uh, an affront to God. I'm just going to go out there and say that right now. Uh, it's... it's uh, don't know if I ever needed to see uh, Jack Buchanan and Fred Astaire's face inside of a bonnet ever, ever before and ever again. So after that, we're back in New York and the fine the show is finally hitting Broadway. And before the show, Tony asks if Paul intends to come to the show uh, to Gabrielle. And uh, before she can go any further or they can go any further, they decide, mm, let's not talk about it and uh, decide not to mention also how they're feeling for each other before they perform tonight's show, the big show. We go to the theater, the bandwagon. It's here. It's starting. And we get a quick little run through the numbers again as they go through the program. And then we get a peek at Girl Hunt, which is really the show's, the movie's finale. A big, long, uh, huge production that especially of movie musicals of this era, they loved to do this type of stuff. Um, again, I talk about the one-upsmanship of Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly probably does the best version of this type of number, number in An American in Paris, the, the famous ballet scene set to the George Gershwin music, uh, and, and to a certain extent to the Broadway melody and Singing in the Rain. Uh, is very much the same. So this is Fred Astaire doing that style of number, this murder mystery uh, where we are following Astaire as a detective and we see Sid Charisse's character as, I think she's three different characters or a character in disguise each time. Yeah. It's never really, never really explained, but she's playing like three different people in this whole scene. Wave it away, Cody. Wave it away. <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's, it, it's a spectacular hey, number. That's entertainment, right? Thank you. Like, that's the moral of the story. Don't think about it. That's entertainment. Are these babies trying to kill each other? Hey, that's entertainment, huh? 
<laughs> uh, this is such a good number. This is such a cool scene. Great thing to end on. Yeah, and I'm. I, it's. It took a while. I almost. Fe- I feel like for a lot of musicals to figure out, like, oh, that'd be a great way to end. Let's just end with like a 15 minute long number where they just get to show off, and it's all this great acting and and uh, dancing through acting through dancing and. Um, it's really, really fun and really impressive. Yeah, I feel like they took a while to figure it out, and I will say they should do this more often because I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, I'm just looking at this with rose-colored glasses uh, that we don't see this as often in movie musicals nowadays, where it ends it, like no one would be like, yeah, let's do it. Basically, no dialogue. Let's just do a big dance number to end this whole movie. Um, it'd be cool if they did, but alas. So if this scene looks familiar, feels familiar, there's a reason for that. That is because Michael Jackson took inspiration from the scene, not once, but actually twice in his career. First, the most obvious one, Smooth Criminal. I mean, he's literally wearing the exact suit. To a certain, like, not exactly the same, but it's the same suit as Fred Astaire. Uh, he also did it again in You Rock My World. Apparently, the bit, uh, I need to rewatch the video for Billie Jean, but apparently that features similarities to the scene. Uh, the titular song for the album Dangerous features a line from this scene. Wow. Michael so Jackson really liked this one very particular scene. Wow. I mean, he's also talked, though, I, I feel like I've heard things from him in the past where he talked about how Fred Astaire was basically his dancing. Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, but even more so Fred Astaire, was his main influence as a dancer. Mm. Dude liked Fred Astaire a lot. This is what I'm trying to say. So I don't know if Fred Astaire will ever do that, you know, the lean. Uh, yeah. I could. Eh, I'm trying to think. Maybe there was some scene where. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's an MJ original. Also, to keep going with this Fred Astaire, Michael Jackson thing, this comes from the book MJ, the Genius of Michael Jackson. The day after the Moonwalk dance aired on May 16, 1983, Michael Jackson received a call from none other than Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire was 84 at the time. He had just filmed his final movie, Ghost Story, two years earlier. Where he played the an old reluctant, not really wanting to dance uh, person to a woman who was a sprite old age of 20 years old. Uh. Goodness. <laughs> you know what? I was going to say the age difference in this movie is what? Uh, I think Sid Charisse is 31? This one's not... T- as terrible because at least she's like right, 30 right <laughs> you know what i mean you're like okay the age difference it's like she's 30 23 she's, year she's, age difference no biggie but, but she but she a grown-ass adult at right, this right, point. right right you know what i mean she's not 21 no, <laughs> it's no, no, like no. okay that's ridiculous yeah and uh fred astaire told michael jackson on the phone you're a you're a hell of a mover man you really put them on their asses last night you're an angry dancer i'm the same way i used to do the same thing with my cane so, uh, and apparently after the phone call, Michael Jackson went, ran to the bathroom and threw up. Yeah, guy was obsessed with Fred Astaire. So, kind of cool. The very, very cool number, and it ends with, uh, what? Yeah, again, I don't, I can't, I, I'm trying to follow the storyline through this. Suddenly, the Sid Charisse character is the blonde, and she's dead, and then suddenly he walks away with 
her uh, at the this red point, dress I gave up and... trying to understand what the hell their play is about. That point, I'm, yeah, I... that's true. Again, what's the? There's supposed to be a plot of this play that I thought yeah. I knew, and apparently I don't. So, um, and I I oh do well. in par- enjoy the part at the end of this movie, uh, where she confesses the the cast's love for. I love that. I love the way yeah. that they do that. As uh, I love it because it it really turns like the genre on its head and kind of parodies the genre, which normally would have a very, very sincere uh, speech at the end, very similar to this, except with no tongue in cheek whatsoever. But instead, they kind of make fun of it, and she goes on for way too long, where she's just like, and the cast, and how much they appreciate you, even though they didn't appreciate you at first, and how they learned to work with you, even though they didn't at first, and how they learned to love you. (laughs) And I think this show's going to last for a really long time. Yes. But they're talking about themselves. You get it? Yeah, after the show, Tony asks if there's going to be a cast party, but he's told, nope, no cast party. So he decides to go out by myself. And as he starts to sing the song in a little bit of a reprise, but as you mentioned, he steps out of his dressing room, sees the entire cast waiting and singing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow. And uh, that's where Gabrielle has that great little bit that we just alluded to. And uh, yeah, now they're in love and they're together. And this show's going to last forever and ever and ever because that's entertainment baby hey and scene so there you go there is the bandwagon again not a big hit to start with uh, a bit of a flop a big production budget for the big time. production budget they had a I, I i feel like mgm kept thinking this will be the one this is the one and it just never quite happened almost like it's almost like they were like okay well if we make a movie for a million and it makes three million. That means if we make it for two point something million, mm-hmm. it'll make seven million. And like the math doesn't work that way. <laughs> Instead, they made a movie for two point something million, and it made three million. <laughs> like they they didn't get it. Like there's a ceiling. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this was a big loss. Should mention that. Yeah, because it was a big loss. Uh, it, this was actually his last movie with MGM. Or at least was wow. this was the end of his MGM contract. It also probably would have been anyway, because this was when MGM was letting go of a lot of actors uh, who were not wildly profitable because they were downsizing and switching over to television. Yeah, and we're getting close to the this is the the tail end of the studio system anyway. Right, exactly. This is everything is falling apart right here. But yeah, he basically becomes a free agent at this point. But uh, eventually. He, I think at the, before the end of the decade, he announced that he would be retiring from film and from dancing after 30 musical films in 25 years. And then, of course, he started doing musicals again in the 60s, so nothing ever really ends. I actually, uh, I have a surprise for you because I actually have a game for you to play today. All right, Paul, lay it on me. I call this game the Tagline Tango. So, I've picked a group of films, all of which we have done on this podcast. All right. I have taken a few taglines from them. I try to make them progressively easier as they go along, but some of them it's a little hard because some of them are kind of vague. So, we're going to start out with a real easy one because there's only two taglines for this one. All right. So, basically, let's see how many taglines it takes you out of two 
to guess which movie this is. All right, and it's this only a, ones this we've, is a good one. we've covered This is a so good far. one to start with. Okay, sounds good. For the benchmark. This is one of the taglines, and I, and I kid you not, you're going to start to see a pattern here. Full of melody, full of young love. <laughs> it could be anything. <laughs> <laughs> it could literally be anything. Well, venture a guess. Um, I'm going to say that that is uh, for me and my gal. Incorrect. Okay. The second tagline is a spoiler. The happiest musical ever made is Irving's Irving Berlin's Easter Parade. <laughs> Let me guess. Easter Parade. Yes. You know, I was almost okay. going to say White Christmas, but decided to go Easter so, Parade. So you pretty much get the game. Yeah, I got you. Okay. Next one. MGM's top Technicolor musical. Uh, it's got to be The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Incorrect. Okay, come on now. Second tagline, and the only tagline left. Get aboard. Oh, it's the Harvey Girls. Nope. What? It's the bandwagon. Oh, God. (laughs) Hop on the bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. There's so many train things. Get aboard could be so many of these. There's literally, no, but there's one that is about someone traveling on a train. Yeah. There's a whole song about the Santa Fe. Yeah. Not fair. All right. This next one has three taglines. First one, MGM's glorious love story with music. <laughs> I, I don't know if you're noticing a pattern. Ins- insert here. music hole here. Uh, let's go with... Um, okay, this time I'm saying for me and my gal. Incorrect. Oh, God. A cast of favorites in the charming, romantic, tuneful love story of the early 1900s. Uh, okay, what's uh, things that took place in the early 1900s? Oh, um, uh, 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 the last tagline, by the way, is a spoiler. Oh, God. Uh, wait a minute. Is it Carousel? No. Incorrect. MGM. Last tagline. The trolley song picture. Oh, God. Meet me in St. Louis. That was like, what's the only other Judy Garland we didn't talk about? And that's the one. Damn it. I'm stupid. I should have had that. Next one. MGM's musical romance of daring days. I I feel like I'm going to say for me and my gal again and be wrong, but I'm going to say for me and my gal. Nope. God damn it. It's blazing, blistering romance in the wide open spaces. Okay. That's the Harvey girls. (laughs) Correct. Thank you. God, I got one. And, uh... If you, if you, in case you're curious, the last tagline was "Hear Judy sing on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe." <laughs> <laughs> I love that they were just like here, set here, insert actor, sing, insert song. Yep, they right. definitely had like ten, uh, like Mad Lib, like basically just yeah, they had like ten that they just went with and just inserted names and, and titles and all that. Next one, three taglines. The most glorious entertainment event of your lifetime. Damn, that is a bold <laughs> statement. Bold statement. The hyperbole is... is. Uh, this one, I'm going to say uh, Royal Wedding. Incorrect. Okay. More than your eyes have ever seen. Okay, really? <laughs> <laughs> this is literally any... Movie. If this one's for me and my gal, I'm just going to say it because I keep saying it. I got to get it right once. <laughs> Incorrect. Oh, my God. Last one, and this one's not a spoiler, so oh, you actually good. do get another guess. Good. Curtain up on a wonderful new world of entertainment. 
Is it Carousel? It is. Ah, all right. God, they were all so vague. Next one has four. Oh, jeez. Greatest musical show ever to thrill your heart. (laughs) (laughs) The Wizard of Oz. Incorrect. Okay. The greatest romantic musical ever. For me and my gal. Yes. Okay, good. The next one was The Bells Are Ringing and She's a Yankee Doodle Girly. Very nice. And I got two more movies here. All right, lay them on me. All right, this one has five My God, that's too many taglines. Two is enough. All right, here we go. Ready? I'm ready. Gaiety, glory, glamour. (laughs) (laughs) Means nothing. (laughs) Means absolutely nothing. A royal wedding. Incorrect. Oh, God. <laughs> Songs you will sing and dance to. We've not talked about that many musicals. How am I getting these all wrong? <laughs> Wizard of Oz. Correct. Okay. What are the other ones? The, the Mighty Miracle Show that is the talk of America. Wow. The greatest picture in the history of entertainment. <laughs> I mean, honestly, they didn't. That one, it's, it yeah. sounds like I probably, but they weren't that far off. Augmented orchestra of 130 pieces, chorus of 300 rousing voices, 100 minutes of unforgettable entertainment. Man, that'll get them in the seats. And mighty miracle show of a thousand delights. And the last one, you might just get it by process of elimination. But at this point, I better. There's five taglines as well. Oh, God. MGM's gay new musical. (laughs) It's anything. It could be anything. Oh, God. Um, ba, 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 ba. What, we said Easter Parade already? Yeah, we said Easter Parade. Okay, my mind is becoming mush. I'll give you the next tagline just for yeah, funsies right now. You just gotta give it MGM's to gayest me. color by Technicolor Musical. It's, it's the same tagline. It's the same exact tagline, but you put uh, it in Technicolor. It's up there with MGM's best big star musicals. Uh, We've already mentioned all the Judy Garland ones. Eight hit songs, dazzling dancing, gay romance, glorious music. It's all the same. I don't know. And the last one is okay. a spoiler, so this is your last chance to, to um, get the... Uh, what have we not talked... What have we not mentioned? What have we not mentioned? I guess it must be uh, Royal Wedding. Yes, correct. Okay, thank God. The last one was the story of a famed singing, dancing brother and sister team. I don't know if it's the heat or just <laughs> what it is, but at a certain point, I was like, this is all the same tagline for the same movie. There's no way oh, yeah, these are different. That, I, I, that's why I started laughing, because I, I was like, oh, I wonder like, if there's anything interesting we could play with the taglines, and I just started noticing. I was like, they're, they're all the all same. They're all the same. Every single one. Every movie my, was described the same way. <laughs> my favorite is gaiety, glamour, glory, glamour. That's my... I just want to put that as like my headline on Twitter. Yeah. It's like, ha! This is me. I, I am all the gaiety and glamour you'll ever need. Yes. Good Lord. Well, you we hope you enjoyed this gaiety and glamour this week, and uh, we hope you uh, will listen for more. And uh, go find us uh, at Movie Musical Pod on Twitter. Go to our website, moviemusicalpod.com. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcast. That's podcasting, a movie musical podcast. We are there. Uh, you can... Also, like us on Facebook. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Cody Pasby. You can check out my stuff at paulponte.com. Uh, you can find links to all my podcast projects, my music projects, my photography. All that stuff's on there. I do Indie Handshake. Uh, it's a wrestling, independent wrestling podcast that I really love doing. And, uh, of course, uh, any other projects, of course, check out thescreenwatchersguild.com. You'll probably find other stuff that we do on there at some point. Uh, we like to just feature new things we're working on in there. And That's right. Exactly. Until next time, uh, do your, your homework for this week. Listen to Randy Newman's Faust, everyone. And until then, I'm Cody Pasby. I'm Paul Ponte. And we will talk to you down the yellow brick road.